Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 119 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. Today, I'm having a discussion about a specific type of therapeutic intervention, cognitive behavioral therapy with Dr. Jessica B. Stern. This gets at the point of sort of CBT and being able to utilize treatment effectively is, is it impacting your functioning? And if it's not impacting your functioning, then it's not necessarily something we have to um, modify or get rid of. And so the question is, is it impacting you negatively? And if not, then that's something that we can leave. We don't have to worry about changing it. And so we're not trying to get rid of every military skill set or philosophy or anything like that that you were trained in. It's just a matter of modifying things that are holding you back. Before we kick off the interview, I'd like to bring you a quick message from Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, founder and president of Given Hour, about an event that's coming up June 9th through the 15th. I'm Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, founder and president of Given Hour and the Campaign to Change Direction. We want everyone to join us the second week of June for a week to change direction and the Change Direction Jam. Together, we're changing the culture of mental health. Events during the week can happen anywhere and everywhere. We're so excited to work with IBM to create this global discussion. Mark your calendar, register, and join us to Change Direction. Go to changedirection.org. That's changedirection.org to learn more. Here at Headspace and Timing, we'll be joining Given Hour during that week. The podcast episode that week will be with Dr. Van Dalen, and that week's blog post is going to focus on the campaign to change direction. Longtime listeners will know that our mission is to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health, and the campaign to change direction is doing exactly that. Make sure to check them out at changedirection.org. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, today's guest is uh, Dr. Jessica B. Stern. She is with the... Uh, NYU Langone Health Center. Um, she's a licensed clinical psychologist and, and specializes in trauma, mood, anxiety disorders. And we were talking earlier, um, the rare clinician who's on social media, uh, which is where she and I connected. So, uh, Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Such an honor. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. It's, it's definitely, I think, uh, a while back I was looking for guests. I'm always looking for guests, especially clinicians, to share what we know as clinical mental health counselors um, and share that with veterans who kind of need to hear it uh, or, or the, their family members. Um, and, and a lot of our discussions have been about um, you have a particular expertise in cognitive behavioral therapy, which I definitely want to get into. But before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little about yourself. Sure. So like you mentioned, I am a licensed clinical psychologist at NYU Langone Health. I work in the Stephen A. Cohen Military Family Clinic, which is in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU. Um, so I work sort of in the civilian sector, working with veterans and their families. 
Um, previously, I worked at the Crescent VA Medical Center, which is the Philadelphia VA, and I did some of my training there. And my specialty falls within the trauma and PTSD range, like you mentioned, um, depression, anxiety, addiction, uh, those types of things. And uh, I previously did some research as well, um, which is actually where I initially got started in working with veterans. I'm in graduate school and doing research on veteran suicide and depression and anxiety amongst veterans, as well as addiction and PTSD. And um, it's really one of the greatest pleasures of my life and being able to work with this um, population and these individuals. It's just been so, so meaningful for me. And um, I'm so honored to be able to work amongst them. So it always interests me to, uh, to talk to guests who maybe um, didn't have a military background uh, and then found themselves working with veterans um, and, and, like you said, have really enjoyed it. Um, what was it about working with veterans in, in the very beginning um, or, or what is it now that really kind of interests you about um, about veteran mental health? Sure. So I have quite a few family members that served in the military. And so while I myself didn't serve, I grew up with this, this awareness of what military culture is like and what it's like to serve. And I know individuals from various different branches and different eras. Um, and I always just had this very great appreciation for what it means to be in this very particular culture. And um, it's a population that so desperately needs help. And I think individuals feel oftentimes, I don't want to generalize, but a lot of veterans feel lost or confused or just have this difficulty connecting with people that can appreciate what they went through, or at the very least, someone who's interested in learning. And so um, because I didn't necessarily, I didn't serve, I don't necessarily have that personal background within myself. Um, it was really important for me to be able to learn more and for me to be able to communicate with individuals that I had that interest in learning and where I don't know things, I will ask questions and things like that. Um, and when I applied to graduate school, I applied to work specifically in a research group that worked with veterans and um, worked closely with DOD at the time. And so it was something that I knew right on the onset for my graduate career that I wanted to work with uh, with this population. And throughout the course of my graduate career, I you know, started to do more research and things like that. And um, I started to connect more within the clinical capacity with veterans and it was just so incredibly powerful for me to be able to do and for me to be able to help individuals who are seeking help and desperately needing that connection um, and were feeling maybe a little bit lost um, or something that it was important to me. And I think the, the military culture, having the sense of identity and feeling this brotherhood and this bondedhood, but then also feeling like there's so many different things that need to be overcome after service. Um, it was something that was just very intriguing to me, and I wanted to be able to learn more and be able to help in whatever way I could. So, now I, I definitely appreciate that, especially those who um, you know take time to learn the culture. Right? You don't. I don't have to be um, a, a native-born German to learn the German culture. Right? I can go and, and live in in a different culture and learn. Like you know, I'll get ninety-nine percent of the way there. I'm not somebody, and, and we've talked about it often on the show, where you have to be a veteran to 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 work in the mental health field with veterans, number one, there's just not enough of us. Those who are service members who then um, transition to become mental health professionals, arguably there's not enough mental health professionals overall. Uh, but the idea of, of culture is, is very significant. Um, and, and you've, you've learned that culture, you've sort of worked with that culture, but then you also bring a level of clinical expertise um, in your clinical background that sort of helps those those veterans. I, I found your dissertation, um, by the way, um, and and the um, you're not just solely focused on PTSD, and, and you had uh, you had previously talked about you know your you know. A, uh, addictions, which is what uh, the the um, connection between addictions and post-traumatic stress disorder, but also, you know, depression, anxiety. Um, many times, and I've talked about it here on the show, we focus on PTSD and TBI or two slices of, of the whole pie, uh, but veteran mental health is much more complicated, um, and your focus is on, we call them comorbid, but co-occurring disorders of of addictions and PTSD. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, the, the complicated nature of it all. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right. They're sort of PTSD and TBI are sort of the hot topics right now that everyone's talking about and for good reason, because they are significant public health concerns. Um, but like you're mentioning, there are so many other struggles that people are having post-service 
that they're really interested in being able to overcome. And depression and anxiety are two very big ones. And so um, we oftentimes will see depression go along with PTSD. And sometimes we'll see just depression alone or just anxiety alone. And we can see any combination, any cocktail of these um, various disorders. And what can be really helpful is being able to educate the veteran community and individuals themselves about what the different types of struggles are. Because I think sometimes people will see something in the news or hear something from a peer. And if it doesn't really fit for them, they'll be like, okay, then this must just be me. I might be the only one who's struggling with this specific set of symptoms or this specific struggle. So being able to say, actually, no, maybe you're depressed. Um, Maybe you're, you're suffering from clinical depression, or there's actually this type of anxiety disorder that I think maybe you have. Um, I think can be really empowering for people. It can be really scary to hear those those words, but I think it can be powerful because it sort of puts a name to the face. Um, and, you know, I think letting people know that maybe you experienced a trauma, maybe you didn't, and either way you're struggling and either way you're entitled to care and to help um, can be really important. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that in, in being able to say, okay, you know, this is what we're dealing with, not that. And, and I've often discussed it on the show. I had a, a Vietnam veteran who had struggled, of course, many years, and, and he's um, uh, emerging into treatment now. I uh, had been told for decades, and he believed it himself, that his challenges were with PTSD, right? We're, you know, it's all PTSD. But as we sort of walk through it, a lot of his... Um, the challenges in the last 50 years were around disrupted relationships, you know, a, a, a marriage or, um, you know, uh, rejected in some way about a relationship, mother passing away. So these kind of things. And so for, for years, everybody was saying, okay, we're going to treat your PTSD. Um, but it's sort of like, um, treating for diabetes when diabetes isn't the issue. We actually have to understand what the actual issue is. Absolutely. And I think what happens sometimes um, and I think there oftentimes is a very good intention behind this, but sometimes someone will walk into either a primary care clinic or a community mental health center or something like that, and whoever's seeing them sort of sees something in their past and then maybe attaches a diagnosis onto it really quickly, like, oh, you were in combat, you must have PTSD, um, or X, Y, or Z must happen, or you're abusing alcohol, maybe you're suffering from addiction when in fact they don't necessarily get sort of the nuanced information in between. Um, and so sometimes people are walking around with misdiagnoses or sometimes they're, they were um, sort of offered a right diagnosis, but there's actually a lot more to their picture than just that one thing or that one label. And so I think being able to sit with someone and really break it down with them um, can be really helpful because then they can hear things that they didn't even realize they were struggling with or um, you can provide them with maybe somewhat more accurate information than they received. And I think that can be really important because like you're saying, um, there are so many different struggles that can occur for someone and maybe relationship distress is something that's sort of at the forefront for someone. But if they're um, focused on this other diagnosis because that's what they've received, it might be confusing for them. And I don't wonder if that's where some of the frustration for veterans where they go into a therapist and, well, this doesn't work. Well, it's because we were um, you know, treating the, the wrong thing, right? It, with, with physical health, um, I know that I go see a podiatrist for my foot and a, you know, orthopedist for my knee, right? We don't, and, and so we as mental health professionals, especially in dealing with veterans, and, and I, I absolutely acknowledge the wider population, um, but there are so many more things that are involved with veteran mental health. Like you said, the culture issue, um, the, the meaning and purpose. We loved what we did in the military. We can't do that anymore. That's existential stuff. Um, and so the, the veteran population has a greater need more than just the PTSD. Absolutely. For sure. There's so many different pieces that you're picking up on. And um, chronic pain is something that I used to do a lot of work with as well um, at the VA. And I do it now as well on the private sector side. And um, chronic pain is such a big piece to the picture. And you see individuals who have sustained injuries and have this longstanding pain. And that just happens to be one example. But it's one piece that can oftentimes get overlooked. And pain ties very closely to mental health as well. And so um, if you're not seeing some of those really big pieces or you're not acknowledging it to the veteran themselves, then um, it can feel invalidating or confusing and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, chronic pain, um, uh, the opioid epidemic that's in the veteran population starts in the DOD um, when, you know, you, you get your wisdom teeth pulled out or, 
you know, here's some Percocets, and I've actually had veterans. This this particular veteran that I'm thinking of, um, this is where his addiction started. Is the person at the pharmacy handed him his Percocets, and here's your legal high, and you know, and that's what started him down the path, and ultimately got him put out of the military. And and so there's there's all of these different challenges that that we need to understand. Um, when it comes to, to veteran mental health. And then we need to know um, what can we do, what interventions can we use to, to help that specifically. And so I'd like to get into uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I've actually had some uh, listeners reach out to me before, and they're saying, hey, veterans who are listeners, they're like, this is great, but what do you, maybe we assume that people know what we're talking about, um, but cognitive behavioral therapy has shown to be very effective in my experience with veterans. So maybe if you could talk about uh, CBT uh, a little bit and uh, sort of what it is and, and maybe how it applies to veteran mental health. Yeah, absolutely. So cognitive behavioral therapy is sort of an umbrella category of therapies, and there are different ways that you can apply it in terms of specific diagnoses. And there are also sort of offshoots of cognitive behavioral therapy, like acceptance and commitment therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy. But the idea behind cognitive behavioral therapy is it's focusing on cognitions, which are thoughts, behaviors, which are behaviors, and then this third piece that's not in the name, which is emotions or feelings. Um, and what you do in cognitive behavioral therapy is you're basically looking at the relationships between thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and seeing how they play off of each other, how they feed each other. Um, and how they impact your life. And so CBT is a semi-structured treatment. It's fairly structured in that there are oftentimes worksheets that you're receiving and doing. Um, it's a very active treatment, so you're not necessarily just coming into the office and talking about how your week was. Um, we think of it as a skills-based approach. So basically you're learning skills to be able to look at your emotions, look at your thoughts, and look at your behaviors, and then start to change anything that's not helpful for you. And so really the emphasis is on looking for things that are holding you back, are not so helpful for your day-to-day your -day functioning, um, or are not consistent with your values in life, um, or the goals that you have for your future, and then trying to change anything that's not working for you. Um, and the neat thing about CBT is it can be applied to all kinds of different things. It can be used, sort of depression is the, the biggest way that it's used, but it can be used for anxiety quite a bit, actually, almost as much as depression. Um, other things like psychosis, so people who are experiencing psychosis. Um, CBT for chronic pain is something I've done a lot as well, so that's actually something that it can be used for. Um, and a whole host of other things that can be used for people who have stress and are suffering from cardiovascular disease. So there's also this sort of um, pain psychology perspective where, um, or sort of this um, physical health psychology where you can actually use it to reduce any chronic medical conditions and things like that. Um, and so um, it's this really nice conduit to be able to um, examining some of those thoughts, behaviors, and feelings. Yeah, the um, you know those of us who have studied psychology, of course, the first wave was psychoanalysis, which is really very cognitive based. It's very much in the thoughts. Um, then the next wave, of course, was the behaviorists and Skinner, and, and you know many people know about Pavlov's dogs and, and operant conditioning. So that's the behavior piece. Um, and so CBT emerged out of the combination between the two, right? How do thoughts and behaviors interact as well as with emotions? And, and so um, it, maybe to get into that, maybe an example of because each of these impact each other. The thoughts impact the behaviors, which impact the emotions. And, and either one of these can sort of be a, an entrance into, you know, I'm, I'm thinking something negative. So let's start there. Um, how would someone... Um, maybe identify or maybe some examples of negative cognitions, negative thoughts, which will then influence behaviors and emotions, maybe from a veteran standpoint. Sure, absolutely. So probably a common one is, let's say maybe someone who was recently separated from the military. Although I actually saw this in someone who had been out of the military for 20 years and still was having these types of thoughts, um, was the thought of, I'm never going to fit into civilian society or I'm never going to be able to find a career that is fulfilling as fulfilling for me as what I did in the service. Or um, I don't have a meaningful future for me. Or um, my family doesn't care about me anymore because I was gone for so long on deployment and I don't have a place in my family anymore. Um, so those are a couple of 
specifically veteran-focused um, ones, and there are many other ones that are sort of just more generally related to depression and anxiety, but those are a couple of ones that come quickly to my head. Right, and so that idea of I'm never going to fit in, um, that leads to behaviors such as I'm going to isolate, um, I'm going to alienate myself, I'm, I'm not even going to try to fit in because there's no reason for me to do that, um, which then leads to the emotions of, you know, depression if you're not comfortable with solitude and you feel lonely, um, or anxiety if you're forced or, or, or engage in some type of social interaction but you have this negative thought in your head. Absolutely. And what oftentimes happens is that thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are not necessarily just linear. They're sort of multidirectional. So for instance, this thought of I'm never going to fit in can lead to this behavior exactly like you're saying of I'm going to withdraw, which then can lead to depression. And then there's also another pathway. So I'm not going to fit in can lead to um, depression, which can lead to anger, which can then lead to, you know, fighting or lashing out or becoming irritable or starting arguments with loved ones or things like that, which can then lead to withdrawal. So you're kind of seeing it happening in many different directions. Um, and um, it can get messy. But the beauty of CBT is that you can kind of map it out. Um, and what's really, I think, empowering for people is they get the opportunity to basically slow it down and see what's the relationship between these things. And a lot of our thoughts are happening sort of in the back of our mind without us even realizing it. So being able to catalog those thoughts and slow them down can be really, really helpful for people. Um, and they'd be able to say, I didn't even realize I was thinking that, or I didn't realize that was a concern of mine. Um, so that can be really meaningful. Right. And, and you put me in mind again, this is um, to tie it back to maybe those listeners who, um, you know, have a wider understanding, but many people have, have you know, read um, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and in, in his, his quote there, between stimulus and response, and these are definitely um, behaviorist terms, right? This, the, the Pavlov's dogs ring in the bell and the salivate. Between stimulus and response, there is a space, and that space is our power to choose our response, and our response lies in our growth and our freedom. And so the example you gave earlier of, I'm never going to be able to fit in, so I'm not even going to try. And the, the, the thought and the behavior and the resultant emotion are all like together in a very small space. Um, by putting that space between my thought, I'm never going to fit in and the behavior of I'm just going to sit at home and not do anything. I have the ability to challenge that thought, which can then change the behavior. Absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. And that's the goal of CBT is to be able to look at your thoughts, see if they're helpful for you. And if they're not helpful or if they're not true or if they're not totally true, because sometimes there are things that are somewhat true, is to be able to say, is this a thought that's useful for me? And if not, I'm going to change it. So back to our example of I'm never going to fit in. And like you said, the sort of reaction or the urge might be to pull away and to say, well, I'm not even going to try because it's not worth it. Is, is that consistent with what you want? And many veterans would say, no, I do want to be able to find some way to fit in because I don't want to live the rest of my life feeling isolated or alone or separated. And I do want to find some way to um, be able to adapt to civilian culture or find my new mission or find my new job. And so if that's the value for you, then it gives you this opportunity to say, okay, this thought and this behavior that I had of withdrawing are not so helpful for me. So therefore, I'm going to go back to the drawing board and, and revise that thought or restructure that thought, as we say, and say, um, maybe take a look at that thought of I'm never going to fit in and say, maybe I can fit in. And maybe it's just a matter of finding how or where or when or why or that kind of thing. So, so that's a great example of when we first become aware of the thought. So the thought is the entrance into this, this um, awareness. Um, but then you would also mention sometimes we don't realize what our thoughts, what our, what our, um, our values, our core beliefs are, uh, but our behaviors are problematic. I've actually had um, one of my former uh, veterans or one of my former soldiers who said that for years after um, uh, we redeployed and he got out of the military, he would go to bars deliberately to get in fights. That's that's what he, I mean, that was sort of his his thing. He, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm going to go to the bar and, and get in a fight tonight. That was his, so that's a behavior. I don't know really 
what the thought is behind that. I don't have the awareness of the thought behind that. And yeah, the emotion is anger, but sort of I become aware of this problematic behavior and that becomes my entry into this, um, this awareness. For sure. And what's great about that too is even if you don't know what the thought is, you can definitely take the behavior as sort of the entry point and then sort of work backwards. So you decided to go Friday night to the bar and you're sitting, you're sitting there and you're picking a fight or something like that. What happened before you decided to go to the bar? Um, I don't know. I was sitting home alone and I was feeling very lonely or very isolated or very angry or I just had a fight with my significant other X, Y, or Z. Okay. And then what were the thoughts that happened when you had that? And so basically what you can do is you can actually work backwards to get a sense of what the thoughts were or the feelings were that sort of triggered this urge to act on this behavior exactly like you're saying. Um, and you can then move forward and say, okay, so you got into a fight and this is a consistent behavior for you. How do you feel after this happens for you? And then they can paint the picture of, I don't really like it and it's not really something that I want to continue doing or feels frustrating after a while, or I just don't get why I do it. And then you can kind of work forwards from that as well. So you can right. get to the point, which is pretty neat. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. And, and you're exactly right. And as you're, you're talking about, um, uh, even there's this, the, the emotion is an entry point, right? Um, I'm just so angry all the time, or I'm just so depressed all the time. I don't really have an awareness around what my ang- what my behavior looks like. I, I, I see this a lot, and this is when I work with a veteran clinically, um, you know, I, I point out, you know, what they don't even know what they're doing, maybe with their hands or with their legs or, or even their facial expression, which is a form of behavior. They're not aware of what their behavior, they know what they're feeling emotionally, um, but they don't know how that expresses um, through their behavior and they don't recognize the thoughts. And so this is the interesting thing for me is with, with CBT is you can use any of these things as an entry point to really get to the core, which is what is my thinking? Why am I thinking this? And do I want to change it? Precisely, precisely. You can pick any entry point and then basically catalog what's going through your mind at the time um, and in general. And what's really powerful about CBT and I think can be very enlightening for people as they're going through CBT is that typically there are a small set of themes that reoccur for people all the time. And so you might have thousands of thoughts, but if you actually break them down, they probably cluster around several themes. And so you can actually identify what those themes are and then change those sort of themes like uh, collectively. So for instance, one theme might be a sense of loneliness. Another theme might be a sense of uh, worry about the future. Another theme might be related to anger with a significant other or things like that. And so being able to identify those themes or the patterns that are happening um, can be very, very helpful for people. And you had mentioned uh, different types of cognitive behavioral therapies. You said this is really sort of an umbrella. We've had people come on about, um, you know, cognitive processing therapy, um, acceptance and commitment therapy act. The type of, and this goes back to our previous discussion about knowing what we're dealing with, right? Which target are we aiming at? Because the CBT that we would use for um, PTSD, for example, is a different type of CBT than we would use for depression or even thoughts around relationship distress and how I engage in relationships. CBT can be used for all of them, but if we're using the, the wrong type, I, I guess, um, it's not as effective. Yeah, and that's why it can be really helpful to get a sense of what are you struggling with? So asking the person, what brings you here? And sometimes they'll say, you know, I don't really know. I just know that I'm struggling, but I'm not exactly sure what the problem is. So being able to sort of break that down, it might take a little bit more time and a little bit more patience, um, but it's worth the effort to be able to figure it out. It, so that way you can be able to apply the appropriate treatment um, and figuring out what's going on. I will say, um, sometimes people will say that they want to work something, but it's because they're scared to work on something else. So for instance, um, someone might say like, I want to work on my depression when in fact they do have PTSD and there's a trauma that they're a little bit worried about working on. Or sometimes it could be the opposite. Sometimes it could be something very, very different. Like I want to talk about, you know, um, my combat experience or that accident I had in boot camp when in fact, they're very, very anxious about other things and they're not quite ready or aware to be able to talk about that anxiety. And so um, 
sometimes you want to be a little bit aware of avoidance. Is someone avoiding talking about something that they want to or working on something that they should be? Um, and I think just being very patient, you know, as a clinician, you want to be, you know, patient with the individual you're sitting with, but then also as the patient or the client, um, just being patient with yourself too, and recognizing this is a process and, um, you will get through it and just showing up is really the biggest step and is so important and you're here and that's the biggest step that you've made so far. And that's really powerful. No, I, I agree. And, and you've mentioned it a couple of times. This awareness is, is huge. And, and sometimes we'll have people come into to your office or my office or a clinician's office and they're like, well, I don't know why I'm here. Um, uh, and it's not my, um, uh, my quote, uh, mentor of mine said there's for veterans, there's usually one of three reasons that they come in to seek treatment. It's their lawyer, their lover, or their liver, right? <laughs> and somebody from the outside has said, whatever you're doing, it's not helpful for you. Go get help. Um, and there is no awareness. Um, other times, like you said, I know exactly, you know, I know that my behavior, I know that my emotions, or I even know that my thoughts, I'm, I'm starting to see veterans. And this is where our uh, discussions about um, uh, veteran suicide are or I see it making a difference because veterans are starting to come in and saying, you know, I'm having these problematic thoughts about taking my own life. I'm not to the point of imminent danger and harm and, and, you know, we're not to, but, but they're starting to notice sort of the, the thoughts. Um, and so the awareness can come from outside, but also inside the individual. And, and the sooner that awareness comes and the sooner we act on that awareness, the better it is. Mm-hmm. Awareness is huge. It's really important. Sometimes that's actually a treatment goal. And so having the awareness at the beginning um, doesn't have to, we don't have to have full awareness at the very beginning. It can be a process that we gain awareness over the course of time. Um, but being able to get a sense of what is going on for you and what brings you here is important. I love that quote that you mentioned. I think it's a really great one about what brings you here and the three individuals that would bring you here. And if it's very right. Very often, sometimes people will say like, I don't want to be here, but like X, Y, or Z person told me to come. And so then I'll say, okay, why did X, Y, and Z person want you to come here? Um, tell me a little bit more about that and, um, getting a sense for what types of things they're struggling with can be really important. Um, and nine times out of 10, nine and a half times out of 10, um, when people initially come in saying so-and-so told me to come here, but I really don't want to be here over the course of a couple of weeks, they'll say, I'm really glad that I'm here and I really want to be here. And I'm not just coming back because they're telling me to come back, but I'm coming back because I want to be here myself. Um, and so it can be meaningful. This is actually a consistent theme that I see. Um, I work with justice involved veterans, um, and, and have for about five years now. Um, and so veterans who are local veterans court and that they're the lawyer side, right? You know, they didn't listen to their liver or their lover and ultimately they got involved with the law and, um, and, and most of them, and, and I can't say that, that all of them have said this, but, but I think it's a cement sentiment that's common. They said, you know, I don't, I'm not glad that what happened happened. I'm not glad that I lost control that night and ended up doing what I did that caught and got me in front of the judge. But on the other hand, I'm glad that it happened because then I was able to finally address what I'm doing and then, you know, understand it and, and get a hold of it and move beyond it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Sometimes people, I think, need that almost that reason to be able to come in. And sometimes if it's not sort of this like intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation, where is the motivation coming? Is it coming from within or is it coming from outside? Um, and sometimes people need that outside motivation to be able to do that. And um, ultimately, whatever brings them in is powerful. And sometimes they need someone else to say, this is why you need to do it. Or sometimes they need to quote unquote hit rock bottom, which by the way, is a saying I don't really love, but I'm going to use it here. Um, and being able to say, I, I reached that place that I don't want to be at anymore. And it's finally time to get help. And I'm ready. You know, I, and, and I'll give you another phrase, use it if you maybe you like or you don't, but I had a sergeant major one time that said, uh, sometimes the donkey needs to be hit between the eyes with an ax handle to be able to get its attention. Um, it's a different kind of rock bottom, but yeah. I think in, in that phrase, I was the donkey he was referring to perhaps, but, um, and so, and this is now once the awareness comes and then there has to be change, right? You know, because or we have to take action because we can be aware of something, you know, it's, it, 
physical. You go back to, okay, I have chronic pain, but if I don't do anything about it, right? You know, this is the, the classic, um, you know, a veteran, I injure myself, but I'm not injured. I'm just hurt and I ignore the injury, um, which is, and I've said it before, I had surgery on my hand 15 years after I should have had it done, um, which, which caused lasting damage and muscle atrophy and stuff in my hand and things like that. And so I can be aware that there's a problem, but if I don't take change, and this is where CBT actually helps take that change, um, or, or enact that, or enact that action to be able to make that change happen. So this idea of I'm never going to fit in, how would a veteran challenge that particular thought or how would you help a veteran walk through to challenge that sort of absolute negative thought? So there are what we call patterns of problematic thinking or common patterns of negative thinking. And they're really handy worksheets that your CBT clinician can provide to you. Um, and we kind of take a look at them and see, does that thought fit into any of those? So examples of some of those thought patterns are catastrophic thinking is one, which is sort of assuming the worst case scenario and thinking about that. Um, another one is mind reading. So assuming that you know what another person is um, thinking. Um, there are other ones about that are future oriented or past oriented. There's black and white thinking and all or nothing thinking, which are fairly similar. Um there's absolute thinking. And so getting a sense of that statement of I'm never going to fit in, what kind of thought is that? And I, you know, I would work with the person a little bit more slowly, but ultimately a thought like that is um, fairly absolute. So that word never is, is a fairly dangerous word because it's really absolute. Um, and so getting a, getting a person to recognize that maybe we can soften that sentence or that phrase and say, change it to a fact, which is I'm having difficulty fitting in, or I'm not sure if I'm going to fit in. Um, it takes a little bit of the pressure off. It makes the statement a little bit more likely and a little bit more accurate. And it also allows room for alternate possibilities. And so it allows the person to consider that maybe they can fit in and maybe it'll just take a little bit longer or a little bit more effort or trying something new. Um, and so that can be important. And what happens is, and this is sort of almost what the premise of CBT is based on, is that we make assumptions. And we as human beings always make assumptions. And when we're depressed and we're anxious and or we're having experiencing PTSD, um, our mind tends to make more assumptions, extra assumptions. And so catching those assumptions is really important because assumptions are not that helpful, typically. And so being able to catch them and see them um, can be really important. There's this idea in CBT, we call it the three C's, which is what you want to do for your thoughts. There's the catch it, check it, change it. Catch the thought, see if it's helpful. Check it, see if it's helpful. Um, and then change it if it's not helpful or if it's not useful. And um, that's where this idea of changing the thoughts comes in in CBT. You know, and, and that's something also that I always tell um, the veterans. If if you want to go live in the bus in the woods like Gary Busey and in, in what is it, Black Sheep or whatever it was, right? If you if you want to go do that, and you're not hurting yourself, you're not hurting anybody else, you're not doing anything illegal, and you know why you're doing it, and you're okay with that why, then then by all means, right? If you don't, if you say I'm never going to fit in, and you don't want to fit in then there, there's no reason to change it. And that's part of the, I'm going to catch it, I'm going to check it. And so if it's valid, well, okay, well, I'm happy about that, right? I could, you know, another analogy in, in here in Colorado, I'm never going to be able to climb Pike's Peak. Well, yes, with that idea, and I think people know this, that with that negative thinking, you're never going to do it. But some of the challenge is, if I want to climb Pike's Peak, so I have a, a positive desire but I have a negative thought, then that's where the discomfort comes in. Exactly, exactly. I love that you say that. And what you can do is there's sort of two things that I think about in terms of getting a sense of is this thought helpful is um, back to what we were talking about in terms of tracking the thoughts, the emotions is if the emotion that you're having after that thought is negative, then it's probably indicative of something that you don't want to have. So if you have the thought of I'm never going to fit in and your thought is neutral or positive, like, cool, like I can live a, you know, a solitary life or something like that, then great. That's not a thought that's necessary to change. However, if the emotion that comes after that is a negative emotion, like I'm feeling sad or angry or scared, um, then it's worthwhile to take a look at it. And so the emotions are one piece. 
Another piece that I like to weave in, and this is something that you see in other types of therapies as well, like acceptance and commitment therapy and, and dialectical behavior therapy, is this idea of values. And so I will oftentimes start CBT or other treatments with a little bit of a values of, uh, exercise, where I basically I have handouts for this and things like that. And I'll say, what are the things that are important to you in your life? And I'll these worksheets oftentimes will be broken down into different domains. So domain of family or relationships, domain of education, civil action, um, career, things like that. So you pick the domains that you have a value in or something that's important for you. Um, and then you describe what that value is. And throughout the course of CBT, if your thoughts are inconsistent with your value, that's typically a place that we can sort of look at the thought and say, maybe that's worthwhile changing. So for instance, if someone really wants to get an education and wants to get a certain career, but their thoughts are, I'm a terrible student or I'm never going to be able to graduate, then that is a thought that is inconsistent with their value for education and career. And so we'll take a look at that thought and say, is that true? Do we know for sure that you're not going to be able to graduate? Or do we know for sure that you're a terrible student? And is there something that we can do to soften that thought, make it more accurate, and then maybe make some adjustments? And, and I really appreciate that. It definitely, you know, I, and I talk about, you know, getting to the core belief of, of what the, the, the true problem is. You know, I'm angry at the insurance company because, um, you know, they totaled my car and they shouldn't do it and it was perfectly drivable. Um, well, no, really in, in going underneath of that, what you're really angry about is your loss of, of mobility and, and freedom because now your family's down to just one car and, and you're really frustrated because you don't know how to solve that problem. But the insurance company is the easy target, right? And so this idea of what is it, the core beliefs or the values that's underneath. One of the thinking traps that you had referred to earlier, though, is something that I'd like to, to discuss because it's, it's one that was appropriate in one environment and it's no longer appropriate. So this idea of catastrophic thinking. Um, when we were in the military, especially when those, uh, those like me who were, were deployed to a combat environment, we had to think of what the worst case scenario was, right? It was always, you know, what is the most dangerous course of action? What's the most likely course of action? You know, what's the enemy going to do? Because no matter how many times I step out the gate, I have to be prepared for the worst possible um, event. And so for me, this is one thing that the military trains us, um, just like anger and hostility in certain environments, that, that it's appropriate in one environment and that kind of catastrophic thinking is no longer appropriate when we leave the battlefield and go to the boardroom of the classroom. Oh, I'm so glad you bring this up. This is so good. Um, yes. And this is probably one of the most common things I see with anxiety and also with PTSD in the sense of uh, I see it a lot with hypervigilance, which I'm sure you're very, uh, very um, commonly see in your practice as well. Um, so what I typically will say to people is you were trained with a skill set that was very, very adaptive for you in the military. It was, it kept you alive, right? It kept you on task. It kept you in check. Um, is that skill set or that mentality helpful for you in the civilian world? And mostly people will say no, or they'll say maybe some of it is helpful for me, but not quite to the same degree that it was in the military. Um, and being constantly on guard or always having contingency plans or things like that actually detracts from their ability to function in the civilian world as fully as possible. So this is a, an analogy that I bring often with um, PTSD, but I think it applies also for depression and anxiety is, and this is, you can use this also literally too, it's not just uh, metaphorical, but if you're sitting at a football game, right, and you have your very expensive hot dog and you're so focused on all the exits that you're not paying attention to any touchdowns that are happening or you're not paying attention to the hot dog, it probably means that you're not focused on what you're there to see in the game. And so if your goal is to not watch the game or not to focus on that really delicious, very expensive hot dog that you have, then great. However, if your attention was to go to the game and have a good time, then maybe that awareness, that contingency planning, that hypervigilance is actually impacting your ability to enjoy what it is that you want. Um, and so maybe there's this sense of um, we can kind of temper or calibrate some of that, that negative thinking or that contingency planning or that, that catastrophic thinking so that way it's a little bit more appropriate for the civilian world. Um, and we don't have to get rid of the catastrophic thinking. We don't have to get rid of the worst case scenario. But maybe there's a sweet spot that we can find that's a little bit more helpful for civilian world as compared to military world. 
um, because people don't want to give it up. And I don't blame people for wanting to give it up. Right. Like we talked about it, it was really important in the military. And in a lot of ways, it's a strength to be aware and to be planful and things like that. Um, and so it's just a matter of, of changing it to this new environment and finding that new way. And, and it requires, I think, a lot of patience. And um, sometimes people get frustrated because they don't know how to sort of turn it on or turn it off. Um, and so maybe there's we want to install a dimmer in the light. Right. We don't want the switch to be all the way on. We don't want the switch to be all the way off. We want to dim it so that way it's sort of in the moderate zone. And I really appreciate how you said that you don't want to, or you don't have to get rid of the thought entirely. I think that's what a lot of veterans think is like, I just have to stop thinking this way. And I have to basically strain against the collar and, and just, you know, um, fight my own thoughts. Um, but as you were talking, I recall, and again, as I mentioned, I, I, you know, work with the veterans court and I, 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 so several years ago, I think I was walking downtown I didn't even realize I was looking at rooftops until there was somebody actually on the rooftop and, you know, and, and there was sort of that, wait a minute. And I found myself crossing the street safely, of course, but sort of keeping an, an, an eye on this guy that's on this balcony up on, you know, the, the hotel up there. Um, but I noticed what it was. I noticed what the thought was. I noticed the behavior that I was engaging in. Um, and then I let it go. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't, you know, turn around and run back to the Jeep. And, you know, I didn't let it ruin my day. I was like, oh, well, there it is, combat vet. You know, it's, it showed up again. And so I didn't, I didn't have to get rid of the thought. I didn't have to fight the thought. And I didn't have to let the thought control me. Yes, yes. And this gets at the point of sort of CBT and being able to utilize treatment effectively is, is it impacting your functioning? And if it's not impacting your functioning, then it's not necessarily something we have to um, modify or get rid of. And I think that's a perfect example of you were able to sort of move on and continue your day and not feel too distressed or not holding you up in, in terms of getting you know somewhere late or something like that. And so the question is, is it impacting you negatively? And if not, then that's something that we can leave. We don't have to worry about changing it. And so we're not trying to get rid of every military skill set or philosophy or anything like that that you were trained in. It's just a matter of modifying things that are holding you back. So, for instance, if um, you're so worried about I'm practice live and practice in New York City, right? This is like a perfect city to be able to think about all of these things. Is if you're so focused on looking at rooftops that you're walking really slowly and you're showing up late to work every day or you're feeling really, really anxious by the time you get to work, maybe that's a time that we want to take a look at that and say, okay, it's not so helpful for you. However, if it's not impacting you, then great. But I also think this awareness piece um, uh, can be beneficial if we change what our military behavior or mindset, or, uh, and we adapt that to our new environment. I had a veteran one time who was a, a sniper, right? Um, and um, he started working in the construction industry, and what he found was his method of scanning his sector was very good in his job as a roofing inspector. He could scan the roof and very quickly pick out what the anomalies are, and, and he was actually a better roof inspector than some people had been doing it for years because he readapted a skill set. You know, people are like, well, what is a sniper going to do, you know, when, when he's in the civilian world? Well, he is somebody that actually took his skill acknowledged what benefit it had and then uh, adapted it to a new environment, which is another way of this catch it, check it and change it. Definitely. Definitely. And we see that a lot with people who pick jobs in the civilian world that either match, you know, their MOS or rate in the military or in some way sort of capitalize on some of that functioning. We see it a lot with law enforcement or first responders. And sometimes those skill sets can be really helpful in the civilian world. And um, so if it's helpful, then again, we don't necessarily need to modify it. So it's just a matter of what your context is and is it useful for you or is it a little bit less useful for you? Yeah, no, this uh, this has been an, an absolutely fascinating conversation. I, I always love talking about, um, you know, we always geek out about the things that we're interested in. But I think it was also very beneficial for, for people to really get an understanding about what CBT is. Um, because even as a clinician, we sort of assume that people know what we assume. We assume that people have the same background information as us. And veterans maybe have the same issue of we think other people should have the same background information on the military when really they don't. And so I think this has been very beneficial. Um, 
maybe I'd like to give you an opportunity, some last thoughts, anything that you'd like to um, uh, leave us with? Sure. I think you had mentioned a couple of things over the course of the interview that I wanted to revisit. First of all, Victor Frankel's book, Man's Search for Meaning, is a wonderful, wonderful read. So if there are any listeners out there that would be interested in listening and reading it, I highly recommend it. It is a wonderful, wonderful read. Um, and then another piece which we didn't um, really talk about, and I know that you've had a lot of really wonderful guests on the show, so I don't need to say anything that's already been said very beautifully, but um, suicide, of course, is a really big piece. And so um, I think finding ways to be able to communicate any concerns that you have about your safety and finding people that are safe for you to be able to speak with, um, I think is really important and um, actually comes up a lot in CBT, especially because we treat a lot of depression with CBT and suicide oftentimes comes with uh, that. Um, and so there are resources out there. There are folks that want to be able to help you if you're feeling suicidal. Um, I know I try to be sort of this is secret on the air is I try to be really casual in talking about suicide with people because I want them to feel comfortable and I want them to feel like I'm automatically going to hospitalize them. Um, and the more relaxed we are in talking about it, I think the more comfortable people can be. And so find that person for you that you can speak with if you're feeling at risk um, or at harm, because there are people who want to help you. So, um, yeah, please seek that help if you need it. You know, I appreciate both of those. Um, as far as uh, Man's Search for Meaning, I, I read it twice, or I've met, read it more than twice, but I read it before I deployed to combat, and then I read it after I deployed to combat, and it gave me a totally different uh, point of view on especially that first half of the book. The second half of the book is more for you and me and, and sort of the, the technical stuff. So you only have to read half of the book if you're, you're really yeah. interested. Um, uh, but then I also appreciate how you say that, um, you know, being very gentle um, when talking about suicide. Um, I, I often have veterans who have been in treatment before that are reluctant to even broach the subject of suicide. Some because people haven't even talked about what suicide is and what it does and, and why it's there. Um, and it also ties into this CBT is you either come in because of the suicidal behaviors. I'm, I'm a post uh, attempt or I'm having these thoughts or there's certain emotions that are leading me to engage in these behaviors and thoughts. And, and so the idea of, and, and as you'd mentioned, we had some guests on the show. I'm thinking specifically, um, you know, Sally Spencer Thomas, uh, and Stacy Friedenthal, who, who very said that clinicians, um, aren't very well trained in addressing the topic of suicide. It's basically, you know, many of them, you know, what's the risk and, and, and let me get you hospitalized to minimize the risk, which ultimately that's not the best. So it's great to hear it is the best when it's needed, but it's great to hear that you, um, you tackle the tough subjects and, and with veteran mental health, there are a lot of tough subjects. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So I really appreciate you taking the time today. If somebody wanted to reach out, maybe find more about you, the work that you're doing, uh, how can they find you on the web, social media, uh, the Cohen Clinic, things like that? Sure. So I, like you mentioned, I'm on Twitter. So you can find me, Dr. Jessica B. Stern. Um, you can also find me through um, my institution. So I'm at NYU Lingo and Health. If you just search my name, Jessica Stern PhD, then you'll find me as well there. Um, or I'm on LinkedIn as well. So there are a couple different ways. So if you just search me with, um, with the B in the middle, because there are lots of Jessica Stern PhDs out there. <laughs> so um, hopefully you should be able to find me there. Sounds good. We'll make sure that all of those are in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This was really wonderful. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. Hopefully that was helpful to you. As I mentioned in the show, I've had some listeners reach out to me asking if I could highlight some of the therapeutic interventions that mental health professionals use. And cognitive behavioral therapy is a common one. As we talk about in this episode, it's pretty much about being aware of negative thoughts, questioning them to see if they're accurate or beneficial, and changing them if they're neither. I hear it a lot from clients that I work with. If we're that easy, why doesn't everybody do it? The fact is, we're often just not that self-aware. These thinking traps that we were talking about are mental habits, something that we do automatically that we don't even think about. When you tie your shoes, you're not concentrating, right? These thinking traps are like that. So ingrained in us that we don't even think about it and we're not even aware of it. One example that I give, and I've often heard others say as well, 
is that we say things to ourselves that we wouldn't say to our worst enemy or that we get angry about if someone said about someone we cared about. Self-deprecating things, self-critical things, calling ourselves stupid and crazy and dangerous and lazy. The problem is, if we believe these things to be true, then they will be. When I help veterans work through these things as a therapist, then life often starts to make a little bit more sense and become a bit easier. By examining our thoughts and how they impact our behaviors and emotions means that we can control all three and get what we want out of life. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST119. If you want to show your support for the work that we're doing, make sure to leave an honest rating or review on the platform you're listening to this on. Our thanks this month go to Give an Hour and the Campaign to Change Direction. Don't forget, we'll be joining them for the week to change direction from June 9th through the 15th. If you want to see how you can too, go to changedirection.org. A week to change direction will happen anywhere and everywhere people and organizations want to be part of this change. Give an Hour will provide toolkits with suggestions and ideas for how you or your organization can participate in a week to change direction, or you can create your own. We're always looking for guests, either veterans or those who support them. You can drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com to recommend guests, or go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash guest to fill out a suggestion or request. I'm happy to announce that I've released a paperback version of the first Headspace and Timing book. It's been available on Kindle for a couple of years, but now you can get it along with Combat Vet Don't Mean Crazy check it out, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST book. Just a reminder that the guests and information in this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a practicing therapist, I'm not your therapist. Something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode. Hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice so you don't miss it. Until then, remember, veterans, you're not alone. Ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic tendency, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.